Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you the talks from the 2022 East End Conference that took place over the weekend of April 23rd and 24th at the Astronomer Pub in Middlesex Street in the heart of the East End of London. Frog Moody has had decades-long involvement in Ripperology and all of the most well-known organizations and events. Born in Salisbury, Wilshire, in 2004 he formed Time Zone Productions to research and record social history and historical events through publishing, guided walks, theater, lectures, and exhibitions. He is the organizer of the annual Salisbury History Festival, now in its fifth year. And Frog's talk is entitled, The Life and Times of Detective Sergeant William Thicke. The next talk is by uh, Frog, which is The Life and Times of Sergeant William Thicke. Um, it's a look at his life from his early beginnings in rural Wiltshire. Do you know, I've just made the connection because Frog is so um, It's like in London's East End, and it's from Jack the Ripper. I'll keep talking for a second. Okay. Frog Moody, everyone! I missed the introduction there. You don't want to It's nice to see Andy Ayliff here. Round of applause, everybody. I've only said that so you don't heckle me. Ah, <laughs> oh, done it. Great. So, I actually put this talk together a long time ago, all the research for it, and it appeared in a Whitechapel Society magazine. And at the time, I was a bit disappointed, and I'll come on to the reason why. I couldn't find out why William Thicke, why did he leave his rural Bower Chalk to come to London? And it's great that I've been invited to do this talk because the new research that I've done, I think I've got the reason why he actually came in in the first place, which is fantastic. So how did I get interested in William Thicke? Oh, there's people here. Great. <laughs> I got interested really because I bought a brilliant book called the A to Z, the Jack the Ripper A to Z. Has anybody got it? Yeah. yeah. And absolutely found when it came out, brilliant book, fantastic. <laughs> And I'm flipping through all the interior of the books, and I came to William Thicke and found he was born in Salisbury. And I had absolutely no idea really who William Thicke was at the time. Certainly didn't know he was born in Salisbury. I'm from Salisbury, and I thought, here's a fantastic chance for me to be able to research my own person. You know, cause we all like to have someone that we, that we click on to, don't we? Lindsay's got William Gull. You know, and it's just great to sort of like research your own sort of thing. I told you I'd get it. I told you I'd get it. So I started. He wasn't actually born in Salisbury at all. He was born in a small village about nine miles from Salisbury called Bowerchalk. Lovely little village. I already knew this village because uh, one of my clients when I was doing landscape gardening was William Golding, who wrote Lord of the Flies. And so I, I was actually already sort of like au fait with that area. And it is quite a unique place, actually. So, William Thicke was born in Bowerchalk on November the 27th, 1844. Now, in all the books, it will tell you 1845, including the A to Z. And it's only through a lady that I met recently, Sarah Grundy, over here, who I should be talking a bit uh, more about later. 
that uh, she's informed me with this, this fact. So all the books now will have to be put right. So William Thick was not born in 1845, 1844. His first home was at Misselfall Green, Church Street, Bower Chalk, and quite close was the Holy Trinity Church where William's parents, Charles Thick and Mary Shepherd, had married on the 14th of January, 1841. William Thick was christened there on the 26th of January, 1845. So this is Mistlefall Green. This was William Thick's first home. It's one of the houses in this picture. I don't know which one it is, but it's definitely one of the picture, uh, houses in this picture. Quite a remote area, but not as remote as the area that he would actually eventually end up in. This is the church where William Thick was, was christened and where his parents were married. And the picture on the right-hand side is the high street, really, that goes through Bower Chalk. And leads, you can see the church in the background there. So, Mistlefall Greenwood, the address there, will remain the family home for over the next 10 years, with William and his two brothers, Frederick and Robert, and two sisters, Jane and Ellen, all attending the small parish school built in 1844, the year William was uh, born, for a fee of one penny a week. Uh, many of their parents from Bowerchalk could receive little education themselves and they could see no reason why their children should be taken from gainful employment in the fields. So they tried to keep them away from going to the school. Um, there are numerous reports I've done fantastic, it's fantastic to be able to read newspapers online because I've researched uh, William's childhood and he became a carter. So he was driving uh, carts for the hay and that was his main job. There are loads of fatalities in Bower Chalk, carts tipping over, because the terrain in Bower Chalk, steep banks, all the rest of it. So William was um, quite used to sort of like, you know, having uh, danger all around him. And this would hold him in good stead a bit later on. By 1865, another three brothers, Morgan, Charles and George, and two sisters, Anne and Alice, had arrived. Uh, William was a carter, father Charles was an agriculture labourer working six days a week, 8am to 5pm. This is the school that William went to. It is now their village hall. And this is where William eventually became a carter. This is his farm where he, where he actually worked. And uh, you can see how bleak it is on the left-hand picture, extremely remote. Uh, quite an interesting story about the picture of the, of the farmyard there. <coughs> when I took this picture, I decided to go there. I mean, I, as I said, I knew the area quite well, but I decided to go to this farm. And um, my girlfriend at the time, Janet, drove us there. And I thought, I'm just going to take a few photographs. So I'm walking up the path, start taking the pictures of this farmyard. And this chap come running down saying, Oi! Clear off, bloody oik! Get out of it! <laughs> and they've been called an oik before. <laughs> what actually is an oik? <coughs> Andy, what's an oik? You. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose I have to. <laughs> I said, I'm terribly sorry. I should have, I should have knocked on your door or something. Yeah. What it is, is that I'm doing some research into a detective who worked on the Jack the Ripper case. And I'm really sorry. And he said... Jack the Ripper? Really? Jack the Ripper? He said, look, um, I've got some friends down from Surrey. We've just had our Sunday lunch, but we're just about to have 
Stilton and Port, would you like to join us and tell my guests about Jack the Ripper and your research? Now, I love Port and I love Stilton. I'd be absolutely delighted. So I did, I went in and there they were. And I was there for hours relating the story of Jack the Ripper and drinking loads of this port. Absolutely legless on this stuff, fantastic. Uh, and then one of the ladies said, um, I know about Jack the Ripper. Um, wasn't he something to do with royalty? Um, wasn't he the, the Queen's doctor, sort of a, a gun or something? And I said, you've nailed it. <laughs> definitely William Gunn. I know someone who will back me up on this. <laughs> so what I didn't realise was I staggered back down to the car. My girlfriend at the time, Janet, was there four hours waiting for me. <laughs> and I apologise. All the way back to Salisbury, I got the right rabbit in my earache. About, about, oh, I've been waiting for you four hours and a half, for God's sake. I said, you've got absolutely no sense of humour at all, have you? <laughs> and we split up. <laughs> I wasn't drunk, I couldn't drive, I was too drunk, which is why she was moaning about it. Where was I? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I always thought that um, the reason that William Thicke came to London in the first place <coughs> in Bower Chalk was because farming in Bower Chalk was on the decline. Uh, farming had become difficult. The community, a newspaper article from 1846 shows the distress of the chase labourers at Bower Chalk Wilts. This rural village can, we believe, boast of as much industry and virtue as any other parishes in the whole country. And yet, immediately, as the harvest is gathered, in the distress prevails here. Some of the labourers have been out of employment for several weeks. Those with families have, of course, applied to their respective parishes. The failure of the potato crop will add to considerably to the suffering of these poor labourers, who, we understand, have petitioned the Right Honourable Sidney Herbert MP for Southern Wiltshire for his interference, so as to keep them from having their homes broken up and becoming inmates of the Union. Now, Sidney Herbert was an extremely powerful man. He was, um, well, he was in the Cabinet for Lord Salisbury, he was Secretary of War, and he was a man who... Uh, really was the benefactor to Florence Nightingale as well in the Crimean War, so he was quite a powerful uh, man. Did he help the labourers of Bower Chalk? No, not at, all. not at all. By the mid to late 1860s, farming at Bower Chalk was steadily declining, poor harvest and foreign competition had a disastrous effect on corn prices, more and more arable land was laid down to grass, and further decline was caused by a short shortfall in the price of wool. And the other thing was, if someone from a rival village, like Broad Chalk or Esbourne Wake, two rival villages, if a labourer came into Bower Chalk and took the job of someone from Bower Chalk, boy oh boy, he was in big trouble. And it's exactly what happened. In 1867, the local journal, Salisbury Journal, reported a charge of assault in Salisbury Marketplace. Mary Burden, John Thick, and Mary Thick, all of Bower Chalk, must be relatives of William Thick, were summoned upon a charge of having assaulted George Lush, not Lusk, George Lush, <laughs> also at Bower Chalk in the Salisbury Marketplace. George Lush had gained employment as a shepherd but was from another village which caused much resentment. Things came to a head when a young man belonging to Bower Chalk broke a hurdle belonging to Lush's master and Lush appeared against him as a witness before the county magistrates at Salisbury. A penalty was inflicted for the offence and Lush, was as he was leaving the court, was set upon by a number of persons from Bower Chalk who struck and kicked him. 
Jane Burden from Bower Chalk screamed, we're hanging by the neck before he gets home. She also kicked him and struck him. Mary Thick knocked his hat off and John Thick took hold of his coat and attempted to strangle him backwards. Lush was lucky that a policeman came up to his rescue. Now, as I've said, the actual reason I, I was sure when I wrote my article was that all these corn prices and what was happening in Bower Chalk, William Thick thought, I know what I'll do. <coughs> to London, I'll join the Metropolitan Police and get out of it. I found out now the actual reason that he did. From 1878 until 1924, a unique village newspaper in Bowerchalk was written, printed, published and sold for a farming in Bowerchalk by the Reverend Edward Collett, documenting the social issues of the village. When Collett arrived from Silverstone to take up his position in Bowerchalk as vicar, he brought with him two young people, his 18-year-old housekeeper, Sarah Stone, and John Linnell, who wished to study for the ministry. When Edward Collett died at Bower Chalk in, 18, in 1924 at the age of 77, John Linnell buried Collett's printing press and glass slides in the garden at the vicarage, and they remained there until 1989. Why he buried <coughs> the printing press all these glass slides is a mystery, but that's exactly what he did. Until a man named Rick Rex Sawyer, who actually by chance was a friend of mine, <laughs> he was, he was a friend of mine, he bought the vicarage in 18, uh, 1989, and while was digging a new vegetable patch, discovered buried, the buried printing press, etc. This led Rex to research, and finally resulted in his book, Collette's Farthing Newspapers, the Bower Chalk Village Newspaper, 1878-1924. That's just a picture of uh, what life was like in Bower Chalk for uh, William Thick as a carter. So here is Collett's penny, that's the, the book, and that is Collett himself. Collett, when he arrived in Bower Chalk, really, it was disarray. I mean, the schooling was, the teachers just kept on leaving, there was no discipline in the, in the village. If someone was taken ill, that was it, there was poverty and all the rest of it. Collett was really almost like uh, a modern-day vicar of Digby. Yeah, really took the, the village by, by the neck. Um, Bought in thrift clubs, so if people were ill, their money was there for them to, to be seen a doctor. He was a really, really special guy, and he stayed in the village all his life. My own research into the parents of William Thick revealed that William's mother's mother's maiden name was Shepherd, Mary Shepherd. She had a brother named Isaac Shepherd, William Thick's uncle. Isaac Shepherd is mentioned throughout Rex's book as someone who was a benefactor to the village from Bowerchalk, even though he was living in London. My researchers revealed that Isaac Shepherd left life as an agricultural labourer in Bowerchalk in the early 1850s and settled in Lambeth, where he became quite a celebrity. That's the vicarage, that's where the printing press was actually dug up in the back garden of that house there. Now this is Isaac Shepherd. Of course, I now know why William Thick left Bower Chalk for London, but the mystery now is why this chap left Bower Chalk for London. We'll come on to that in a minute. So Isaac Shepherd, let's have a look at this man. This is from the Salisbury Journal, 1881, and it was via a London correspondent. On Tuesday evening at dinner at Sison's Hotel Lambeth, a valuable testimonial was presented to Mr. Isaac Shepherd 
who for many years has held an important position of coroner's officer and high sheriff of Lambeth. He left his native Bowerchalk, where his father and family had been on the Pembroke estate for over a century, and on leaving for London, he promised he would refrain from ever doing anything to disgrace their names. When he came to London, he was engaged for 13 years in detecting the misdeeds of dishonest people, and he was pleased to remember the numerous recommendations by the authorities by the manner in which he had performed his duties in connection with the discovery and conviction of some of the most notorious <coughs> criminals of the, of the period. Another newspaper report, the South London Press of 1887, gives more insight into Isaac Shepherd. Mr. Isaac Shepherd occupies a very important public position. He was either a constable or a deputy coroner, or sometimes both of that kind. And then Mr. Shepherd of London is a great man in his native village. He is said to present the natives with a clock, or a clock tower, or a row of almshouses, and he makes a pilgrimage, it is said annually to his native village, where the old people and the children have regaled with buns and ginger beer, and other good things equally satisfying and comforting. But the best press report of all, and it kind of implodes into William Thicke, is this one that appeared in 1902 in the South London Press. It makes one feel old to recall the number of times one has met Mr Isaac Shepherd, parish constable of Lambeth, in the discharge of his official duties. Nevertheless, one does not begrudge or rather rejoices in the fact that the old gentleman, after 50 years of diligent and faithful service, is to be testimonial-led. There could be no worthy object of such an honour. Mr Shepherd commenced his official career by joining the Metropolitan Police Force in 1851, being drafted about a year later into the Lambeth Division, with which he was being connected for 13 years, and for seven of which, that period, he was the only detective sergeant in the division. He was especially successful in establishing a reputation that made him a veritable terror to evildoers. In fact, Mr. Shepherd was the recipient of awards at the hands of Sir Richard Maine, the Chief Constable of Police, no less than 47 times for his general activity in detecting crimes of all kinds. So William Thick not only had a contact already living in London, but one who had already had a sparkling police career with 47 awards from the Commissioner of Police himself. It is my belief that Isaac Shepherd encouraged William Thick to try his hand in London and the Metropolitan Police as a career. My research shows that William Thick and his uncle were the greatest of friends and discussed police matters and no doubt included the Jack the Ripper murders. And I noticed when Isaac Shepherd was awarded his testimony, one of the people invited was named Jew. And the sentence saying that Isaac Shepherd had a reputation that made him a veritable terror of evildoers was very like the one that Water Jew bestowed upon William Thick. In trawling through the Salisbury newspapers, it is noticeable that William Thick, sometimes with his wife Hannah, and together with Isaac Shepherd, would visit Bowerchalk every year to oversee uh, the comment and comment on the running of the village. William usually gave a speech and the end toast, and Isaac Shepherd always contributed financially. It is likely on his arrival in London, William actually lodged with, with his uncle in Lambeth. The, awful, the official records show that on the 16th of March 1868, William Thick, warrant number 49889, joined the Metropolitan Police at Great Scotland Yard. Straight away, he was appointed to the H Division Whitechapel in London's East End. Quite a change from his life in Bowerchalk. It was known as a land of beer and blood, or as one commentator called it, Whitechapel is a land of rats and brats. <laughs> <laughs>
we all see this picture. This is uh, Whitechapel. It's his, you know, his most cart everywhere. William would have been used to this, of course. Yeah, that was his job as a carter, so he'd have been quite used to this. And in fact, in Bowerchalk, uh, when I used to work there, I can remember walking across the fields, and it was literally strewn with farm implements. I mean, it would be worth an absolute fortune today, but they were literally everywhere. Things like a, a chain with like a wedge that if a cart was rolling backwards, you could just work, put this under the wheels. And there was a very enterprising pub called um, the Horseshoe at Evsbourne Wake, with, which is rival village to Bowerchalk. And the landlord there literally went out, picked up all these farm implements, did them all up, and they still to this day adorn the walls of his pub. It's a brilliant pub. If you're a Southampton football supporter, this pub in the 80s was frequented by Kevin Keegan, Alan Ball, and Peter Osgood. That was their local pub. So, you know, it's a, it's a really good place to go. So over the next four years, William, now living at Lehman Street Police Station, would become familiar with the, with the warren of narrow gaslit alleys, the courts that merged with the drab mean houses. He would also gain an understanding of the low-life criminals and prostitutes who made up this despairing landscape. And all of this knowledge would go to, uh, wouldn't go to waste in the years ahead. <coughs> So let's just quickly look at the Williams particulars of service. After joining the police in 1868 and spending four years in H Division, William was transferred to B Division, Chelsea, on the 4th of January 1872. This appointment did not last long. On the 18th of September 1872, it was transferred back to H Division. And sometime between 1872 and 1873, he was promoted to Detective Police Sergeant. I think it was 18, 1872, actually. On, the July, on July the 8th, 1878, he was transferred to P Division, Camberwell, before returning to his old stamping ground on the 3rd of May, 1886, when he was again transferred to the H Division, Whitechapel. Now, it was not always plain sailing for the young William Thick, and I found quite a few newspaper reports on life in Whitechapel involving William Thick. Some they met, I mean, I could literally quote probably about 15, 20, but here's just three that I picked out. It's been really quite interesting. So on the 1st of January 1872, William Thick, number 245H, division after a complaint from a woman that her husband had scolded her with a boiling pan of water, went into the house to arrest him. He was met with a punch to the nose and ear, after which the wife and the children also set about him. <laughs> Thick made a hasty retreat and later returned with a warrant. Very wise. But this one here is probably the worst one because um, this is the headline. Attempt to murder a detective. A report showed that William Thick was lucky to escape with his life. After arresting two men on suspected theft, Detective Sergeant Foster and Thick were set upon by the men. Thick was thrown to the ground and was gripped tightly by the throat by the man who refused to let go and screamed that he would do for him. Thick was clearly in trouble and being strangled, so it was lucky that Sergeant Foster let his man go and rescued Thick from certain death. As Thick was getting off the ground, the assailant aimed a violent kick at his head, which caught him on the side of the face, cutting his nose and mouth. He also tried to bite Thick and kicked him in the back and other parts of his body, and it took four policemen to get the man to the station. Now, it just shows how conscientious William Thick was, because about <coughs> three weeks later, after all his cuts to his face and bruised ribs and the rest of it healed up, William Thick went back to a pub. Landlord had come out and patched him up and, you know, wiped his face of all the blood. And William Thick actually went back there uh, to thank them for looking after him. 
And as he walked into the pub, he looked around the pub and the barman says, everything all right, governor? And he said, um, yeah, he said, but I've been told that this was the roughest pub in the East End. He said, I'm looking around, all I can see is two old boys in the corner playing dominoes. To which the landlord said, see that sawdust on the floor? Yes. He said, well, last night that was the furniture. Avalon and Thick also worked together on a case. I put this in there because I can't stand these programmes that portray Aberline as an opium addict or a, a whiskey drinker who's obviously powered by tea. They all were. <laughs> so that's just to put the record straight. Uh, 1878, William Thick and Inspector Aberline working together, caught four coiners making <coughs> counterfeit shillings, and they managed, after a struggle, to get all three of them back to the station. So, they, so Thick and Aberline, there are other reports of the two of them working together as well. How am I doing for time? I'm fine. I'm fine? Great. Meanwhile, back home in Bowerchalk, William's family had moved to Whitminton Cottages, and his father had become employed as a gamekeeper. This would remain the, ha the home of his mother and father until their deaths in the late 1890s. On the 4th of November 1872, William Thick married Anna Eccleston at the, at the parish church Whitechapel. This was followed in February 1873 by the birth of William's first daughter, Annis Alice Anna Thick. At, at the time of the family were living at Fort Wellclose Square, which we all know is part of the Ripper case. And this is very close to Cable Street. Less than a month later, they had moved to 71 Greenfield Street, Old Mile, Mile End, Old, ta uh, Old Town. According to evidence given in his trial by Wolf Leveson, Ripper suspect George Chapman also resided at Greenfield Street. Now, whether Thick and George Chapman lived in the same house, I don't know. It would be amazing if they did. I can't. I can't believe that he did, but you never know. So this is William Thick, obviously. So this is the house in Greenfield Street that William Thick lived in, in his family. William was still in contact with his family back in Wiltshire, and in 1874, brother Morgan, who had been employed in Bowerchalk as a shepherd, made his way to London. Morgan also joined the Metropolitan Police as PC 161 D Division, Marleybone, and lodged with William in the East End, in this very house. William's family continued to grow. In 1878, a son, William Charles, was born, followed by another daughter, Rose, in 1879. The following year, Morgan Thick resigned from the Metropolitan Police for improper conduct of duty. We don't know exactly what that was. I'd love to know what that was and gained employment as a brewer's assistant. By 1881, the family had moved to 19 Nottingham Place, now Parfit Street, Marla End Old Town, and on July the 23rd, 1881, Brother Morgan married Susan Burland in Bethnal Green Church. He eventually took over the landlord at the Red Lion Pub Public House in Covent Garden, a position he held for six years. For some reason, he lost the license for this pub in 1888 and moved to Key Street, now Key Close, Bethnal Green. Key Street was in the vicinity of Bucks Row, and during the Whitechapel murders, a labourer called John Hubbleston of 11 Key Street was sentenced to six months imprisonment for savagely assaulting a woman with whom he was living, striking her with a knife. Morgan was still living in Key Street when he died of pneumonia in 1900, aged just 46. I'm going to carry on with the, 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 um, the Thick family. They're all moving to London. They're all trying to get jobs in Metropolitan Police. 
Obviously, this is done through William. In 1882, the younger brother of William, Charles Thick, aged 20, decided to try his luck in London, and on the 5th of June, 1882, he joined the police force as PC 59 N Division Islington, warrant number 666-4884. He only remained in the police force five years, resigning on February the 1st, 1887. Later that same year, November 1882, William's daughter, Ellen Mary, born in 1881, died of measles. In 1883, another daughter was born, named Amelia. This daughter completed William's family and must have softened the blow of losing the baby Ellen, probably named after William's favourite sister. On 18th of July 1886, George, the youngest of the Thick Brothers, joined the police force at Vine Street, he was transferred to C Division, St. James's, and to K Street Division, Stepney, and finally to B Division, Wandsworth. George completed 25 years service on the 13th of February 1911 and retired to 17 Grove Street, Barnes, naming brother Detective Sergeant William Thick as an extra kin. Do you want to get that? <laughs> if it's me, I'm not in. <laughs> The, ninth, the, eight, the 1891 census gives William's address as 81 Dempsey Street. He retired to this address on the 24th of April 1893 and was granted a pension of £93.10 per annum. The 1901 census gives William's employment as a railway police inspector and still living at 81 Dempsey Street. And in 1902, he was famously met, he met the author Jack London at this same address. William's retirement as a railway police inspector, was reported in the East London Observer of April 1914. And it went like this. At the Castle Hotel Commercial Road, a dinner was given in honour of the retirement through age limit of William Thick, popularly known as Johnny Upright, superintendent of the Police of London, Tilbury and Southend Railway Company, and was attended by all the police staff at the Commercial Road Depot who met on this occasion to bid farewell to their chief and other officers, as this was their final meeting of these men, who, through, though only a small force, are now compelled to disband, and as a result of the London Tilbury and Southend Railway Company being acquired by the Midland Company. The latter company have decided to bring their own policemen to take up the place of those who have faithfully, for so many years, and with such brilliant results, this cannot possibly be beaten as regards to protection of property and, and detection of crime. However, the Midland Company have not been harsh, and those men eligible were offered alternative positions. Those who preferred to retire, including William Thick, were offered a compensation bonus of £50 each. That's quite a lot of money, wasn't it? £50 in 1914. No wonder he took it. I won't blame him. Superintendent Buns of Commercial Road Depot then congratulated Mr. Thick on his good service and expressed regret at losing such a man. William Thick replied saying that he was well satisfied by the way duties had been performed by all staff under him. Loud cheers. And regretted having to resign his position as he felt able to carry on for several years longer. <coughs> Mr. Thick's record whilst a member of the CID Metropolitan Police was mentioned 25 years in the Met, including the active part during the Ripper scale, <coughs> and over 20 years as Chief of the Railway Police. The result of the evening, sorry, the rest of the evening was occupied by a concert. Now, I should imagine, seeing it was William Thick's last day, that they'd probably have a knees up, with an old Joanna in the corner playing, you know, a knees up Mother Brown, all the favourite there. No, the Midland Railway hired the Aryan Glee Singers. <laughs> I bet he went home real chuffed at that. 
At retiring, uh, after retiring as chief of the railway police in 1914, William Thick was quick to tell the East End Press that he was setting up as a private detective <coughs> and gave his address as 35 Milton Avenue, East Ham. East Ham. On the 1921 census, he was living at 13 Milton Avenue, East Ham. But on the death of his wife, Hannah, in 1922, William moved in with his daughter, Alice, at Northcup Road, South London. William Thick passed away on December the 7th, 1930. So this is uh, William Thick's grave, and also the grave of his, his wife. There. So... William Thick and the Whitechapel murders. If, if you go through all the books on Jack Ripper, there's not really that much. I mean, even in the A to Z, there's not really that much about Sergeant Thick. I mean, thank God for Newspaper Online, which I spent far too long actually looking at. But I mean, it really has opened up the research into William Thick for me anyway. So, although Thick is described in various Ripper books as heavily engaged in working on the case throughout, his first major involvement in the Whitechapel murders seemed to have happened during the Annie Chapman inquiry. Edmund Reed was on annual leave, so the Chapman inquiry fell to Inspector Chandler and Detective Sergeants Thick and Leach. When Annie was murdered on September the 8th, 1888, Sergeant Thick examined the body in the mortuary and gave a description which was later circulated. William also took an active part in visiting the common lodging houses around the vicinity of Hanbury Street. This is really where Thick comes into his own. Everybody knows Thick for is the arrest of, uh, of Pizer, leather apron. Two days later, on September the 10th, Sergeant Thick made the arrest of the notorious John Pizer, alias leather apron. The action of Thick arresting Pies is hardly surprising when you consider that the two of them lived just streets apart and had known each other for years. Indeed, with feelings against Leverate from running so high and most of London's police on the lookout for him, it was Thick who knew exactly where to find him, and that he was locally known as Leverate. As it turned out, the police eventually decided there was no case against Leverate, and it released him after two days' custody at Lehman Street Police Station. The following day, Pizer appeared at the inquest of Annie Chapman. This was seen as his chance to clear his name in public. After giving his evidence, Pizer and Thick chatted together until the German Sergeant Thick then escorted Pizer home. How do you pronounce this name? Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's waiting for that. William Thick remained active in the hunt for the elusive Whitechapel murderer, and then Jake, and when Jacob Eisensmith was arrested in the early hours of September the 12th, 1888, Thick examined his clothing for bloodstains. Eisensmith was then finally cleared when the murderer stuck again, whilst he was confined in Grove House Lunatic Asylum. The next murder, that of Elizabeth Stride, on September the 30th, 1888, must have shaken William to the core. For, for the murder site of Duffield's Yard, Burner Street, was literally a stone's throw away from the residence of 19 Nottingham Place, William's home. Later on the same night, a second victim, Catherine Eddowes, was found murdered in Mitre Square. And now there, there's not really that many details charging Thick's involvement on the actual night of the double event. Thick did accompany an East End character called One Arm Liz from Flower and Dingstreet. I love all these characters' names, that would be fantastic. <laughs> 
uh, from Farrandine Street to St George's Mortuary, where he identified the body of, uh, where she identified the body of, of Elizabeth Stride as that of Annie Morris. But surely, with William living in, the, in around Whitechapel and around Berners Street for so long, and with the local arrest of Pisa still fresh in the mind, the Stride murder must have taken on some extra significance. A few days later, Superintendent Arnold was still using Pizer's name to help justify the obliteration of the talk message left on the night of the double event. We all know the, uh, the message, choose the men that are not to be known for nothing. It was found nearby Galston Street, and Superintendent Arnold later stated in a report, in consequence of the suspicion having fallen upon a Jew named John Pizer, alias Leather Apron, having committed a murder in Hanbury Street a short time previously, a strong feeling existed against the Jews generally, and in the building upon which the writing was found was situated in a mist of locality inhabited principally by the sect. I was apprehensive that if this writing were left, it would mean causing a riot and therefore considered it as desirable that it should be removed. It's caused all sorts of problems and, you know, some people think it's not a message at all, it's just uh, innocent piece of graffiti, but caused all sorts of controversies. The weeks passed by without further incident, and then on November the 9th, 1888, the killer struck again. Mary Jane Kelly was murdered in the squatted little room she called home, 13 minutes court, Dorset Street. Within an hour of the discovery, Sergeant Thick was at the scene of the crime, where he quickly engaged himself in making inquiries. After some delay, the door to Kelly's room was forced open and the police entered. Mary Jane Kelly was savagely mutilated. Sergeant William Thick and indeed any other person that saw what remained of Kelly must have been affected for the rest of their lives. On November the 12th, three days after the Kelly murder, the Times newspaper reported some of the problems being encountered by the police. Since the murder in the Burner Street, St George's and Mitre Square, Allgate, on September the 30th, Detective Inspector Reed Moore and Sergeant Thick, Godley McCarthy, and Pierce have been constantly engaged under the direction of Inspector Aberline in making inquiries, but unfortunately, up to the present time, without any practical result. Uh, as an instant of the magnitude of their labours, each officer has had, on average, during the last six weeks, to make some 30 main inquiries per week in the inner London and in the suburbs. According to Stuart P. Evans and uh, Nick Connell, in their book The Man Who Hunted Jack the Ripper, Superintendent Arnold and Thick later took up an inquiry into one Piers John uh, Robinson, named as a strong suspect in the Kelly case by his business partner, Richard Wingate. Arnold and Thick proved, however, that Robinson had left his home in End Road on November the 1st, 1888, and was in Suffolk on the night of the Kelly murder. After the Mary Jane Kelly, uh, there was other murders deemed to be in the series of that committed by the Whitechapel murder, in particular the murder of Alice Mackenzie, on July 17th, 1888. But, um, but like all the others, this was deemed to be murder against persons or persons unknown. Two months after this, September the 10th, 1889, Police Constable Pennett found a woman's torso under a railway arch in Pynchon Street, and again, this location was close to William Thick's residence. Perhaps Inspector Reed had this in mind when he directed Sergeant William Thick to make inquiries at sheds, houses, and places where barrows are kept or, or let out for hire, also at butchers in the neighbourhood of the Pynchon Street, with a view to gain any information regarding the matter. 
Remarkably, a, a remarkable coincidence, on September the 10th, 1889, the same day as the Pynchon Street murder, and the anniversary of Thick arresting Leather Apron, a letter was sent to the Home Office from H.T. Hazelwood of Tottenham. It stated, I have very good grounds to believe that the person who has committed the Whitechapel murders is a member of the police force. Another letter soon followed, and this time the author named the member of the police force that he thought responsible, William Thick. And I think I'm right in saying that William Thick is the only contemporary policeman ever named as being Jack Ripper. I think, I think that's true. <coughs> it's really worth repeating the words regarding the Whitechapel murders that William Thick reported in the East London Observer on his retirement from the Rowie Police in 1914. There is no more knowledge today as to who committed the crimes than there was then. We never knew anything, and we could never fix anyone directly with the murders. They were and are a mystery. The excitement and the alarm created by the fiendish culprit were tremendous, and many innocent people were arrested, including the present editor of the East London Observer, who was out in search of copy. All sorts of people were taken in charge, and anyone carrying a handbag or loitering about was immediately suspected. Finally, and this was quite an amazing thing that happened, an item appeared on the internet from the International Military Antiques USA purporting to be a case of influence that belonged to William Thick of H Division. The price was $8,000. I came that close to buying this thing. I mean, to have something, an artefact, that actually belonged to A, someone that worked on the Jack the Ripper case, and B, William Thicke, who I've been researching for quite a long time, was just, it was too good to be true. I had a word with my wife, Ruby, and I thought she'd say, no, I can't afford that sort of money. She said, well, if you think you want it, have it. If you want to go for it. It's a lot of money to actually speculate on being William Thick's actual thing. So this was the case. Do people here know about this? Yeah. 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 So it appeared, and it appeared. I did some research into the auction house in America, and they seemed really legitimate yeah, in in all the stuff they auctioned. It. I thought, yeah, don't know. Shall I? Shan't I? Doing some research into it, and it lists all the stuff. I mean, this is what this was their blurb that went with it. Jack the Ripper was never caught, and today there have been several theories identi identifying various men as being that monster. Most are quite logical, but the truth will probably never be known. The special department at Scotland Yard, tasked with the investigation, was known as H Division. To put this in today's perspective, these officers were supposed to be the very best, became a household name. The famous lead investigator was Detective Inspector France, uh, Frederick Aberline, and his detective sergeant was William Thick, who had joined the Metropolitan Police on March 16, 1868, as a foot constable. By 1873, he was a police sergeant and earned the nickname of Johnny Upright for his dedicated honesty and for being uncorruptible. Again, this purportedly belongs to William Thick, all in the case, including his his uh, bracelet and his, his pistol. I actually contacted uh, Neil Bell, who's written a fantastic book on Jack the Ripper, mainly about the police involved in the case, to say, would William Thicke have actually had a pistol? 
and uh, Neil's theory was that was that pistols would have had to be signed out. You couldn't just use your own pistol to go somewhere. The H division would have said, okay, if, if you're going into a dodgy situation, you've got to sign our pistols and sign it out. I don't know. The actual auction house went on. Here we offer a Victorian case set belonging to Detective Sergeant William Thick. It measures 16 inches wide by 10.5 inches deep by 6 inches tall. The interior has a removable tray and multiple compartments, and when lifted out, reveals further space, again divided <coughs> up into multiple compartments. The centre of the exterior lid is lifted out, and a brass handle inlay uh, states the engra it's engraved DS William Thick H Division. The contents of this case are numerous, interesting, and many cased initials to the owner WT. So there was things like a 50 ball uh, Tranter double trigger percussion revolver, this police whistle, a powdered flask, uh, iron bullets, a uh, very handsome silver mounted cigar holder, pen knife signed William Thick, engraved on the, on the handle, uh, engraved Vesta box for matches. Loads and loads and loads and loads of stuff. Really quite interesting stuff. Inkwell, etc., etc. I won't go through the whole lot. Victorian police officers, cloak badges, uh, loads of stuff. His watch. Then it said, to finish, there are two early photographs. Perhaps of D.S. Thick as a young man and a group shot of the officers of H Division. So this is the group photo of H Division, except it's not H Division at all. If you zoom in, you can quite clearly see on the crowd, this is L Division Lambeth. And you can see it on this one as well. So it's, it's Lambeth, and it's a really quite early photograph, I would say, of, of Lambeth Peace Force. So here is a picture of Lambeth Peace Force. The other picture, purporting to be William Thick as a young man, is the one on the right. And I think it looks remarkably like Isaac Shepherd, his uncle. I think there are definite similarities. If it is Isaac Shepherd, then we can actually say, or we more than likely, that this case was either Isaac Shepherd's to start with, and he handed it down to William Thick, or William Thick bought it for himself and already had the pictures of his L Division, his uncle's uh, former uh, police force, and the picture of Isaac Shepherd, which he kept with him. There's no doubt that he had a great um, fit, uh, respect for his uncle. He really did. They travelled to Barachok, as I said. So. Now I wish I'd bought it. <laughs> the date of the revolver works better with Shepard. Yes, it does actually. But it's about 30 years too old. To yeah. fit. I've done research on where the case was bought, which was in Cannon Street, which is quite close to where Isaac Shepard was living at the time. So all those kind of things. I've also, because let's face it, um, Ripper researchers are anoraks, aren't they? I mean, you start researching the police whistle to find out if the date fits in with certain things, etc. So. Um, I mentioned at the start of this, uh, my talk this afternoon, that um, the date of birth of William Thick was wrong, and uh, a lady uh, helped me do some research. Um, 
she's actually here, sat here. So to finish off, um, we have, round of applause please, we actually have a descendant from William Thick here today. So if you'd like to come to the front here, and I'm going to put... Do you mind, this is Sarah Grundy, would you mind just um, talking through these pictures and who these people are, please? Yeah, sure. Um, so William Thick was my great-great-grandfather, um, and the photograph on the left is two of his daughters. Um, so that is Amelia on the left, uh, Rose on the right, um, and his grandson Derek in the centre, who is Amelia's son. Um, on the right hand side here is Rose on her wedding day. Um, so that is my great grandmother and great grandfather. Um, and they got married on Christmas Day, which um, seems unusual to us now, but in those days I think it was quite common because it was the only day people had off and things like that. So my research um, began with Rose's daughter, my grandmother, um, and we grew up knowing that an ancestor had worked on the Jack the Ripper case, he was a policeman, and I didn't really know too much about it, but when um, I was on maternity leave with my daughter, Alice, um, I started looking into it much more, and my dad sort of said, oh, there's a box of photographs and papers that your nana had, and she'd neatly typed up all her knowledge of the family. Um, amongst it was a letter that she'd written to the police, Metropolitan Police Historical Museum, which gave William's police record, essentially. Um, and as time went on and the internet became a far better tool for doing research, I've just added more and more to it. Um, so, just to finish, as I think one There is one more picture. Oh, okay. Can I just yeah, mention yeah, Derek? Yeah, yeah. So, Derek, the little boy in the middle, I think is about sort of 10, 12, based on my 12-year-old son. Um, and he became quite a famous um, scientist in his own right. Um, and most notably, he was very instrumental in getting the lead auto taken out of petrol. So, Googling him, he's uh, Derek Bryce Smith, and there's a lot on uh, online about him. Okay? Oh, and this is, uh, so this is my grandmother, uh, Winifred, Winifred Rose. Uh, with her mother Rose, her sister Dorothy, and their father William John McNally. Now, my dad and his brothers knew Win Rose as Nana Mac. That was um, her nickname. Um, so, Nana McNally. Um, unfortunately, William um, was blown up in Ypres in the First World War. Um, lasted 48 hours in Shellhole, according to my Nana, in all her notes. Um, but he was had a leg amputated, so um, he did live 10 years after the end of the war, but he died um, uh, in 1928. Um, and when we found the grave, um, it was actually not unusually next to where Rose had buried her parents. So Rose buried her father, and then her parents were in literally, I don't know, less than 100 yards away. And my London cousins uh, went on a little trip to find uh, William John McNally's grave. And the kind people at the cemetery actually said, oh, there's another grave you might want to see just down the corner, which was William Fix. Which, which graveyard is that? Um, it's Ilford. City of London Cemetery, oh, yeah. I think it's known as. Yes. And I think actually there's some um, 
I believe that is it Mary Chapman's grave yes. in there as well. Yes. yes. Mary, Mary. It's quite a huge, huge um, cemetery. I've not been able to go myself, unfortunately. But oh, really? Okay. Well, thank you, sir. I mean, I think that's a really good place to wind up. But thank you for coming, and thanks for all. all thank you for inviting us. It's great to see you. Pictures. idea of William Fick and George Chapman sharing a house together like some sort of <laughs> 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 that's quite that's quite well. Um we're we're overing a little bit so I'm just gonna go straight to questions rather than having questions myself. Do you do you know the man? Uh, I have met him okay. Rob, maybe you might ask Sarah about her husband's connection with Lightoller. Oh, yeah. Um, that wasn't planned at all, was it? No. It, it often happens uh, in people that are interested in Jack Ripper, for some reason, seem to be interested in Titanic as well. And have you got a, a relative? Are you related to Light Tyler from Titanic fame? I am not. Alice is. Ah. Through her father. Right. <laughs> so, um, now I basically wrote it out. Um, through uh, my husband's fourth great grandmother, her brother married, um, to get it right now, somebody widows, um, and Sarah Jane widows then married uh, Lightoller, and their child was Charles Herbert Lightoller, who was the most senior officer to survive Titanic. Um, he also uh, sank on another ship, two ships he sank on, unfortunately, but he survived. And he actually played quite a role in rescuing um, servicemen from Dunkirk. So there's quite a little bit on him on Wikipedia. Um, so a little hero in his own right as well. Interesting. What a great question that was, Ruby. <laughs> it's almost as if you knew the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions, please? <laughs> we discovered another photo, you see, which I've got. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for it. I've gone off lightly. Great, thank you. <laughs> Rippercast would like to thank all of the speakers at the 2022 East End Conference for allowing us to release this year's presentations. And a special thank you to the organizers, Carl Kopek, Andrew Firth, Mark Ripper, and Adam Wood. If you would like more information on the East End Conference, you can join their group on Facebook or follow us here at Rippercast and we'll keep you updated. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.